From the Center for a New American Security, this is Stories from the Back Channel, the podcast about pivotal moments in national security as told from the inside. I'm Elon Goldenberg. Remember Skynet? That was the name given to the autonomous computer system that tries to take over the world in Terminator. Here's Arnold explaining it in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes. Since 1984, there have been five Terminator movies. Another is slated to come out next year. And over that time, what was once pure science fiction has become more and more plausible. While nobody is worried about being a slave to a robot overlord just yet, advances in artificial intelligence are increasingly taking weapons closer to the line of making life and death decisions. This has huge implications both for our military and for the safety and security of people across the globe. Despite the enormity of the issue, it's only just starting to get discussed in the public. One person who has taken a deep look into autonomous weapons is my CNAS colleague, Paul Share. Paul has spent time thinking about the decisions he made in battle as an army ranger in Iraq and Afghanistan, and what the implications would be if a machine was making those choices instead. His book, Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War, is both fascinating and scary. He's with us now. You know, for me, enlisting into the Army after graduating college was a pretty unusual decision. Most of my peers were not doing that. They were going to consulting or something else. You know, a lot of military families are, it's from their family history. And that Mm -hmm. wasn't the case with mine. In fact, as a kid, my mom tells me that I refused to join the Boy Scouts as a child because I said they were too militant. (laughs) And so like something obviously changed along the way. And for me, it was um, I was in college in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I remember very clearly the Kosovo air war that was going on. The village of Planea, two miles inside Kosovo. All day it has been targeted by NATO planes. The dust rises and when it settles, the jets attack again. In two hours, I counted around 20 strikes on the village. And I saw what the U.S. military was doing to try to intervene and stop this. And then I would go follow this in the news, and then I'd go work on my engineering homework. And I was studying advanced differential equations, and I was really struggling to see what was the value in what I was doing. And I almost dropped out of school to enlist in the Marines. And I kind of realized that maybe I should finish degree first, and over time decided to enlist with a contract to join the Army Rangers, where basically if you complete all the training and if you don't get hurt, you don't quit— Um, At the end of it, I could become a ranger in the U.S. Army. That's what I did. We do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Hey, First Sergeant. It's interesting to hear you talk about the fact that you were doing differential equations in college. I'll tell you, like, I was not doing differential equations (laughs) in college. And most foreign policy people were not doing calculus in college. Yeah. And it, I mean, I ended up finishing up um, my bachelor's in physics, um, which is certainly unusual in the national security field. You know, it helps. It certainly helps when I'm talking to folks about technologies like electronic warfare or cyber or artificial intelligence uh, to have a bit of a, of a technical understanding as a bit of a foundation there. So you graduate from college and you join, you enlist in the army. So 
Yeah, I enlisted in the in the army. I came in as an E four, a specialist, really low on the on the food chain. Just a few weeks after college, and was in basic training when nine eleven happened. Oh my god! Oh my god! That looks like a second plane. Terrible. As I didn't see a plane go in. That that just exploded. We I just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I did. That was out of yes, Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. You go off to Afghanistan and you describe this incident that I read in your book. And it's interesting because, you know, your book is about machines, right, and how machines would fight in war. But this had nothing to do with machines, and yet it has everything to do with machines. Yeah, so I talk like, in, um, in the beginning of the book about this incident where um, relatively early in the war, uh, I was part of a ranger sniper team up on a mountaintop in eastern Afghanistan, right up along the Pakistan border. And we were sent to infiltrate this area and to look for Taliban fighters who were coming across the border. So we infiltrated at night. We hiked up this mountain carrying a total of 160 pounds of gear, actually. And when dawn came, we had not gotten as far as we would have liked to to get into a good hide site. But the sun was coming up and uh, we had to hunker down to try to hide as best we could. And very early on, once the sun had come up, a farmer came out in his fields to go, you know, relieve himself and looked up and could see us and our heads popping up behind us outcropping. We were only probably a couple hundred yards away. And so we knew we had been spotted. And we were expecting some fighters to come and attack our position. What we were not expecting, um, what happened next was they sent a little girl, maybe five or six, to come take a better look at us and probably count how many of us there were for when they would come attack us. And she had a couple goats with her in tow, I think ostensibly to give her maybe some cover that she was hurting goats. It was pretty obvious she was there to check us out. We later realized that she had a, a radio on her. We'd heard the chirping probably reporting back on our position. So she walked this long, slow circle around us. And we watched her and she watched us. I mean, she wasn't very sneaky, to be honest. She was looking directly at us. And then eventually she left. And it wasn't long after before some Taliban fighters came. Now, we took care of them. And then the gunfight that ensued afterwards brought up the whole valley. I mean, we could hear the gunshots echoing across this valley. And we began to see large groups of people coming out and looking at us. So we had to leave. We got on the radio, and um, we had a, a quick reaction force nearby, a platoon of rangers who could come in in Humvees and pick us up. So one of the things we talked about immediately afterwards was how would we deal with a similar situation like that, given that there were civilians just everywhere, and sometimes they were scouting for the enemy, and you might not know, because they're not wearing uniforms, they're not always carrying weapons, they might even be children. And so we talked about things like, well, we would try to detain someone and maybe pat them down and see if they had a radio. We could get a sense of whether you know, we were compromised. One of the things that I can tell you never came up was the idea of shooting this little girl. That was not a topic of conversation. Now, what's interesting, under the laws of war, that would have been legal. Under the laws of war, she's an enemy combatant. If you are participating in hostilities, you're a combatant. It's not determined by your age. It's just about your actions. And so by scouting for the enemy, she was a valid target. And so this gets to this question of when we think about artificial intelligence and machines in warfare, what would a machine do in that situation? And I think the answer is that if you programmed a machine to comply with the laws of war, it would have killed this little girl. Now, I think that would be 
morally wrong, even if it were legal. Um, I don't think that's consistent with American values or the values that I was brought up with or the folks on my team. But I think it raises this challenging question of, you know, how would machines know the difference between what's legal and what is right? So sometimes you have these questions about war and peace at a very sort of micro level, like dealing with this little girl and what would a machine do there in a scenario like that. But then you also have it at a much more meta level. Early in your book, you talk about potential apocalypse as a result of uh, machines uh, miscalculating. Maybe tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, these two stories sort of bookend like the small scale and the big scale of these kind of consequences. There was an incident in 1983 where there was a Soviet colonel, a missile watch officer, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov. And Petrov's been referred to as the man who saved the world because of his actions on this one night where he's sitting in his bunker outside Moscow and he's looking at data from a Soviet early warning system that's supposed to be watching for missile launches from the United States, for nuclear missiles that the U.S. might launch. And he sees an alert go up. And the system tells him that the United States has launched a nuclear ICBM at the Soviet Union. And then there's another launch and another, and all total five missiles the system is reporting launch at the Soviet Union. So he's looking at this, and the system is expressing confidence. It's saying that this is a definite attack. There's a flashing red light blaring saying missile launch. But he's a little bit skeptical. He's skeptical for a couple of reasons. One, he knows that this is a new system of satellites the Soviet just put in place, and that any new technology might have glitches at first. Then he gets on the phone, he calls up the Soviet early warning radar sites that should be seeing these missiles arc over the horizon. Well, they're not seeing them on the radars. But then he also deploys something that's really, I think, valuable to understand how machines and humans are different, how they think about these kind of situations, which is he thinks about, does this make sense? Does it seem reasonable that the Americans would do this? And he concludes it's not. Because if the Americans were going to launch a first strike, he thinks in his mind they would launch everything. Why would you launch only five missiles? It makes no sense, right? So he concludes it must be false. And he reports up the chain that the system is having a false alarm and it's malfunctioning. After 10 or 11 minutes passed, the relief came. The over-the-horizon radio location radar stations did not find anything. And the decision I had made was confirmed. The start was false. The detection was false. But I think it's worth asking, you know, what would a machine have done in that situation? And the answer is, of course, whatever it was programmed to do, it could have very well reported up the chain, there's a launch. And how would have people reacted to that situation? We don't know, but it's possible that their reactions could have taken us closer to nuclear war. Uh, it's a terrifying prospect. It almost sounds like the movies, right? How far has it gone? The president's about ready to order a counter-strike. That's what we're recommending you do. You know, at the same time, actually, in 1983, uh, War Games came out. They looked at a fictional scenario of a computer escalating to nuclear war, you know, potentially. Sir, they need a decision. General, do you really believe that the enemy would attack without provocation, using so many missiles, bombers, and subs, so that we would have no choice but to totally annihilate them? One minute and 30 seconds to impact. General, you are listening to a machine. Do the world a favor and don't act like one. 
you know, this sort of fear of machines gone awry is one that we see again and again in science fiction. We designed them to be trusted with our homes, with our way of life, with our world. But did we design them to be trusted? You say sort of one of the challenges that machines have across the board is not really understanding the value of human life and not really understanding what's at stake precisely, which is why you end up with these types of scenarios. What do you take out as somebody who's actually served in a battlefield about how you try to evaluate a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of like objections and concerns about machines making these decisions. I mean, some of them are just the idea that even if machines did make the right decision, that they don't understand the value of human life. I was on a patrol uh, in the mountains of Afghanistan and uh, part of a small reconnaissance team. And we were scouting along a ridgeline and we saw a man approaching us and he had some goats, was herding goats. But of course, you know, not clear what he was actually doing or it was a cover for him to try to sneak up on us. And so I went to go check him out and I snuck up behind him and I was up above him on the ridgeline and behind him and he couldn't see me. And I watched this guy for a very long time through my sniper scope um, and settled in a position where if I had to, I was in the right position to shoot him. So I watched him for a long time and I heard him talking. Uh, I couldn't see because of the way he was positioned if he was holding a radio or just talking to another person who was maybe there outside of my view. And uh, after a few minutes of watching him, he started singing. And so I was watching this man sing And it occurred to me that that was a really strange thing to do if you were reporting over the radio in our position. He was probably just like actually a goat herder, enjoying the view, taking a break, singing to himself, singing his goats. And he had no idea that I had a sniper scope train on his back at the time. But, you know, it stuck with me in part because I could have easily shot him. He wouldn't have known any better. And, you know, in the big picture of the war, did that one decision matter? No, but it mattered for him, mattered for me. For the other folks on my team, that if he was a threat, would have been at risk. And so that, that stuck with me a lot, this idea that these life and death decisions, they do matter, not just in the abstract, not just in you know a numbers game of counting casualties, but to the people that are there who are affected, but also the people who are making these decisions. And I've certainly had you know friends, I've seen friends after the war struggle with PTSD and what people refer to as moral injury from war, where people have to make decisions that then weigh on folks afterwards. And one of the the hardest things that I've dealt with was friends that have committed suicide after the wars. It's this tricky issue when we think about the role of human responsibility in war um, because there's a cost that comes with humans weighing those decisions. Some of that cost is that when people make these faithful decisions, they do leave with PTSD. They do suffer afterwards. There's an argument to be made that if you offload these burdens to machines, then wouldn't it be great, right, if humans didn't have to suffer with these burdens? I understand the logic in that. The thing worth asking ourselves is, if we were to hand over these decisions to machines, what would that say about us? Even if the machines got them right, you know, what would it say if we had machines out there killing, taking life, and even if they did it the right way, if no one slept uneasy at night afterwards, what does it say about our own morals and ethics? You also talk in your book about another story about a runaway gun. 
first tell me what is a runaway gun? What is your experience with that? A runaway gun is, is a phenomenon that can happen with a machine gun. It's a malfunction. The way machine guns work is you have a, a belt of ammunition that's fed in, and you pull the trigger, and once you've pulled the trigger down, as long as you keep the trigger pulled down, the gun will keep firing on its own. No, a runaway gun happens when you let go of the trigger and there's a malfunction and the gun keeps firing on its own. It was an incident uh, in Afghanistan where this happened in my unit where somebody was taking apart a light machine gun, uh, disassembling it to clean it, and had rather foolishly left the ammunition in. Pro tip, you don't do that. You take the ammo out first. And he took apart the part that actually holds the bolt back and so it started firing on its own. It had a runaway gun. and basically lit up the inside of the firebase with a bunch of rounds. And thankfully, nobody was harmed, but sort of drove home that, you know, these are dangerous things. And I talk about in the book, you know, what happens if you have a runaway gun with an autonomous weapon? So it's not just a, a random spray of bullets, but it's actually targeting and killing all by itself. And some of the risks that would come with that and how you try to mitigate those. The enforcement droid, Series 209, is a self-sufficient law enforcement robot. <laughs> The way that autonomy is used today, we have some autonomous systems that are used for defensive purposes on naval ships, on land bases, on ground combat vehicles to defend against rockets and missiles that might come in to shoot these assets. And many of these have full auto modes. But humans are still there and humans can physically intervene. If you have a drone that's operating on its own, you don't have that level of control. And so that's a whole other level of risk when you start looking at some next generation combat drones that militaries around the globe are developing when you might not have that, that ability to actually you know, reach in there and pull a key and turn it off if you had a runaway gun. We keep talking about the movies and the references to science fiction movies, but whenever there's a bad guy robot in a movie... The plan is always to, like, shut them off, right? I mean, that's what you're trying to do. And they always get out of control. And the question, how do you shut them off? Yeah, I think one of the best, like, popular culture um, examples of this is the stories of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And people are probably most familiar with the, the Disney version of this with mm -hmm. Mickey Mouse and Fantasia, where the Sorcerer leaves and the Apprentice takes Sorcerer's hat and bewitches a broomstick to do his chores carrying pails of water. Will this work very well at first? Unfortunately, however, having forgotten the magic formula that would make the broomstick stop carrying the water, he found he'd started something he couldn't finish. And these broomsticks multiply and go haywire and flood the place. And so, you know, if you have sort of one of these runaway algorithms, how do you find a way to turn it off? I mean, the thing about science fiction is that a lot of our science fiction stories are that, like, the, the robot becomes self-aware and turns on us. This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. I'm not at all concerned about that. But the reality is, is that more autonomous robots today are being born with a gun in their hands. 
There was a, a terrifying example of this in the real world in stock trading several years ago, an incident that became known as the Nightmare on Wall Street. A major high-frequency trading firm called Knight Capital Group had a runaway algorithm. Computer glitches on Wall Street lead to millions being lost. Is it time for the Terminator? Is it they did a routine update one morning, and it began making trades that were erroneous trades, and the system to tell the broader computer system that it executed a trade was broken. Didn't know to stop. The software basically caused Knight's computers to start buying and selling stocks like crazy, nearly 150 of them. And even worse, it was doing this at machine speed millions of times a second. And it was every time buying high and selling low. So it was losing money on every single trade. And within 45 minutes, they'd effectively bankrupted the company. The $440 million loss Knight had to absorb something that sent the stock down from $10 to $2 and change could actually force a fire sale. Man, Obliterate the entire company. They liquidated all of the company's assets. One of the things we've seen time and again during this period is that the process of trading is too fragile for the technology. And so here again, like these are people that were pros. They, you know, they spent a lot of energy thinking about risk, but they got this wrong. And in particular, they didn't have an easy off switch. You know, you're interested in science. You obviously spent a lot of years in the field, you know, fighting and doing these different missions. When does robotics really for you become sort of crystallized as like, this is a huge deal. This is something that I need to deal with. Because these are almost like two separate independent worlds of yours. I can remember one very clear moment where the light bulb went on in my head and I said, robotics is going to be a big thing in warfare. I was in Iraq very early on during the surge and um, we were out on a patrol. We ran across an IED. So we pulled over and called up the EOD text, the bomb disposal text. And they eventually rolled up in the big MRAP armored vehicle. And I'm expecting to see the bomb tech come out in the big suit, like you see in the Hurt Locker. And instead, out rolls this little robot. And I was like, oh yeah. And you know, I kind of sat back and thought about it and I realized there's a lot of things in war that are really dangerous that don't make sense to have robots to do. And so when I ended up, you know, a few years later working at the Pentagon, working on policy issues and new technology, I did a project looking forward into if we could imagine putting robots entirely on the front lines of warfare. And I ended up writing sort of the first official statement that the Pentagon ever put out, talking about future advances in autonomy and sort of raised the question about where is this going and defining what the rules would be to weapons developers inside the Pentagon of what they could build. Top Pentagon officials say the U.S. must stay ahead in the robot arms race. Nations like Russia and China are trying to develop the technology to close the gap. The United States won the Cold War in part due to its innovation prowess, something it hopes to maintain. It's not just the U.S. military question, right? It's also an international question. And you've dealt with that a lot, too. I know because every once in a while you're like gone off in Geneva or some other cool European capital for a week, part of the luxury of uh, what we do. Like, what are you dealing with when you're dealing with this question internationally? Yeah, so there have been discussions going on through the United Nations um, for five years now on autonomous weapons, where countries have been coming together through the um, relatively awkwardly named Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, or CCW, as sort of a forum to discuss this topic. And progress is very, very slow. At the very first meeting, we were there for a week, and we got to the very end of the week, and a number of countries said, wait, this isn't about drones at all. 
And we said, no, this is not about drones today. We're talking about what comes next and more advanced robotics. And they were like, oh. And I would say one of the challenges in this space has been watching the very plodding progress of diplomacy compared to the rapid gains we've seen in the technology, in artificial intelligence in just the past five years. Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk is reportedly seeking a global ban on lethal autonomous weapons. In a recent letter to the UN, Musk and 116 AI and robotics specialists from 26 countries urged the organization to address the challenge of so-called killer robots and outlaw them internationally. An excerpt from the letter says of the weapons, once developed, they will permit armed conflict to be fought at a scale greater than ever. Are we getting to the point where it's too late or where we're going towards a world where you can't actually control these weapons? I mean, certainly, like, if the aim is to stop the proliferation of the underlying technology, something like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, I mean, the cat's out of the bag on that one. It's just not possible. This technology is incredibly diffuse. As one very vivid example of this, I was at a university. I won't say which university, but I was at a major U.S. university, and a robotics professor pulled me aside after a talk I'd given and said, well, I want to show you something I made. So he pulls me back into his office, and he's got this little laptop there. He's got a camera on it. I see my face kind of displayed on the picture of the laptop. And next to it, he's got a little robotic arm and an airsoft pistol. And I see this kind of like white box on the screen near my face. And like almost without even thinking, I kind of tilt my head to line it up to the box. And I hear this thunk as the airsoft pistol shoots at my face. Now, thankfully, like it's not loaded and he's got a little cover on it. But I like almost jumped out of my skin and I was like, that thing just tried to shoot me in the face. And he was like, yeah, this is my autonomous face shooter. Isn't it cool? And I was like, <laughs> well, mm, like, I don't know. <laughs> it seems like at a minimum a little bit rude, I guess. Um, but, you know, talk about a vivid example of how widely accessible the technology is. And so I asked him, like, well, what did it take to do this? And he was like, oh, it was, it was nothing. Downloaded face tracking software online on GitHub for free. Took me basically an afternoon to put it together. Hardest part was wiring the electronics into the airsoft pistol. And I'm uh, like, yeah, a couple lines of code, no problem. So how do you stop that? You can't stop that technology. Now, I did in the course of research, look a big deep dive on all of the lessons that I could find of attempts to control technologies dating back to ancient India. And there are, there are successes like bans on landmines and cluster munitions and blending lasers. There are mixed successes, like efforts to control the spread of nuclear weapons. And then there are abysmal failures, like the efforts of multiple popes to ban the crossbow during the Middle Ages that failed pretty badly. Huh. And so your bottom line assessment? You know, I think we are going to have to live with a world where rogue actors like terrorists, you know, um, uh, rogue states like Bashar al-Assad, Syria, are going to use autonomous weapons. Uh, there's not a good way to stop that. Just like, frankly, there's not a good way to stop them from using crude chemical weapons or biological weapons. It's still an open question of whether most militaries or civilized militaries choose to adopt this technology or not. The hardest challenge is going to be in verification. How do you prove to someone, if they say, I haven't built an autonomous weapon, how do you prove that? How do you get other nations to trust each other? Because the essence of it is in the code, right? It's all in the software. Um, and that's, I think, a really, um, as of yet, an unsolved problem to try to resolve. I mean, should we all be worried that somebody crazy is going to get their hands on something really terrifying? You know, I think some of the worst fears are probably not realistic. I've heard people characterize 
autonomous weapons being weapons of mass destruction, you know, that could be used to wipe out an entire city, you know, launching billions of tiny you know, insect-sized drones that blow up people's heads or something. I'm less concerned about that. You know, I think that there's a constant contest of countermeasures to any military innovation, right? And so if some country's developing billions of tiny drones to wipe out a city, like some sort of robotic WMD, people will work on countermeasures. You know, small quadcopter drones, is that a realistic fear loaded with explosives um, that might terrorize a public event? I would say yes. Um, you know, we saw uh, this summer, you know, an assassination attempt against Venezuelan President Maduro using drones carrying explosives. That is a thing that we're going to have to worry about. One of the things that autonomy does is it allows a scaling up of effects. So rather than one person carrying out one attack, a person can launch a whole U-Haul truck full of drones and maybe launch 50 drones because they're all automated and you don't have to fly them directly. You've seen drones before, but never like this. A swarm of autonomous drones flying themselves. It's the start of a military revolution. That's frightening when you think about defending public figures, public buildings, you know, sporting events. And that's a major security challenge, a, a sort of homeland security challenge. I think there's a limit to how much that can scale without people engaging in pretty robust defensive measures. There are bills that at least at the time of recording are um, up on Capitol Hill that would authorize government authorities to track and shoot down drones in some situations. And at the end of the day, if you were really that concerned, you could string up some chicken wire to stop a quadcopter. I mean, anything that can be stopped by like a roll of chicken wire from Home Depot is not going to be a weapon of mass destruction. I think I am much more concerned about what nation states do. I'm much more concerned about the role of advanced military systems networked together, very concerned about the role of autonomy in cyberspace, and the potential for things to get out of control very quickly at machine speed is much more analogous to what you see in things like stock trading and flash crashes, yeah. uh, where you can have interactions in, in milliseconds in cyberspace. So what you're telling me is we do or don't have to worry about Skynet blowing up the world. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I'm not one to sort of run down the street screaming, but I do think that we need to be concerned and that a, a race forward into a future where there is less human control over violence and war is not a good prospect. That's not good for humanity. And that we need to find ways to come together as a civilization and try to put some restraints on how we use this technology. Because in a contest that ever pushes humans further and further out of lethal decisions in war would be very damaging. We've seen the effects of that in stock trading with things like flash crashes. We don't want to see that in the military space with a flash war. That's Paul Shari. He works with me at the Center for a New American Security as the Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program. He's also the author of Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War, a book I highly recommend. Next week on Stories from the Back Channel, we go from trying to write the rules for autonomous weapons to U.S. efforts on limiting access to the world's most powerful weapon, the atomic bomb. The power that we had at the time and I still think we can have, is awesome, uh, but it is also daunting. Former Ambassador Wendy Sherman recounts the tremendous amount of time and energy that went into negotiating the Iran nuclear deal. I spent 27 days in uh, that hotel. I ate one meal outside of the hotel. There is a lot of momentum to get to the end, but there were many setbacks. Our podcast is a production from the Center for a New American Security, 
Our producers are Rob Sachs and Shoshi Shmulevitz. Music from Nolan Schneider and Jules Tiven. I'm Elon Goldenberg.